Well, thank you, Kat. It's lovely to be with you. Um, and um, it's your church that I've been thinking of and praying for for 21 years, actually. Um, because uh, back in 99, I had a guest called Claire with me um, in Israel, and uh, who was, had grown up at this church, come to know Jesus at this church, and been really blessed by your fellowship. Then 10 years ago, um, I worked for Oakwood Expeditions. We organized Bible teaching camps, people in their 20s and 30s. And 10 years ago, I had a chap called Graham with me, um, uh, cycling around France, uh, who was coming along here and checking out things about Christianity, and great to chat and pray with him. It was lovely to come here um, eight years ago for his baptism, and then um, seven and a half years ago uh, for uh, his and Claire's marriage here. So it's lovely to be with you now this morning, singing about our amazing king who laid down his life out of love for us. It is amazing, isn't it, that the king of all the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, became a man. He was born as a baby, and with a real human mind and a real human body, he went to the cross and laid down his life out of love for us. And this morning, we're reading a letter written by a man who followed in the path that he laid out, a man who took up his cross, followed Jesus, and laid down his life for other people. Romans chapter 1 is where we are. It'd be great if you could have it open in front of you. If you haven't got a Bible, I reckon if you put your hand in the air, then someone would very kindly bring you one from the back. But it'd be great to have it open in front of you, because we're going to be drilling down into Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 32. And as we do, we're going to be seeing what motivated the Apostle Paul, because he lived a radical life, didn't he? Repeatedly, he got on boats, dodgy boats, uh, after he'd been shipwrecked three times. I mean, if I'd been shipwrecked twice, I'd probably think that, you know, I'd stop traveling quite so far. But he carried on getting boats, um, carried on getting shipwrecked, carried on telling people about Jesus, even though when he told people about Jesus, the normal reaction was anger. Frequently, he was beaten. Frequently, he was imprisoned. One time, he was stoned, and they thought they'd killed him. They left him for dead. And yet, even that didn't stop him getting up, going back into the town, and carrying on telling people about Jesus. And it wasn't that it was some heavy duty for him. It was a, it was a message that bubbled up out of him um, at every opportunity. One time, he was facing another of these mobs, a mob that had been trying to, trying to kill him. Some soldiers had intervened. They were dragging him away from the mob, up some steps. And he was heading off towards almost certainly a beating, quite possibly execution as someone who was causing trouble. And his response was to say, may, may I just talk to the crowd? Because as far as he was concerned, this was a brilliant opportunity. All these people were paying him attention. They wanted to kill him. Um, and as a result, this was a great opportunity for him to tell them about Jesus. He just could not help talking to people about this message. And that's why he opens this passage by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's like a, a grandma with a picture of her new grandson that she just, she's going to show you, um, her new grandson. She's just so excited about her new grandson. And that was Paul. And that is how I want to be. That's the way I need to be. Because otherwise, my life is going to be wasted on trivialities, on light, meaningless things that capture my heart, take over my mind, but actually aren't of profound weightiness. That's the way I must be. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them 
when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It is not optional to be unashamed of the gospel. It is an essential part of following Christ. And in this passage, Paul is explaining how we can be unashamed like him. To be completely honest, it's not a passage that I would naturally choose to speak on. Um, I, I, I do quite a lot of itinerant speaking. I've got a kind of set of four or five talks that I pull out most of the time. But as I've been praying for you guys over the last couple of months, God has repeatedly laid this passage on my heart to share with you guys. It's quite a heavy read because in it, Paul sets out to show us just how sick and lost we are without the gospel. You see, we won't realize how urgent this message is until we understand how sick and how lost we are without it. Just as you won't, you won't celebrate that the surgeon is free to perform the surgery unless you realize how, how ill you are without it. You won't celebrate that the mountain rescue team is arriving until you realize how lost you are. And Paul says to us, without the gospel, you are sick and you are lost. And what's worst is you're lying to yourself about it. You're trying to pretend you aren't. Let me read Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. But since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. I'll just shut this door so it stops banging. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men 
and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I'm sure you've sat with friends who clearly have a problem and it's wrecking their lives. Gossip, alcohol abuse, a toxic relationship, and you've approached it as gently as possible because you're British. And we British people, we don't like saying difficult things. And so we've gone, you've gone round around the houses for about half an hour, but you love them too much. And so in the end, you've said, look, I am worried for you. I don't think she's good for you. You're, you're emptying a hip flask on your morning commute. No one tells you anything private because straight away you put it on Facebook. I am worried for you. And the response from your friend is blank incomprehension. What are you saying? No, I'm fine. I am absolutely fine. How dare you? There is nothing wrong at all. And they can't see the problem because they don't want to see the problem. There's none so blind as them that won't see, Jonathan Swift said. And we call it today, don't we? We call it being in denial. Being in denial of a problem. And Paul says that without the gospel, every single human being in the world is in denial. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How do we treat the truth? We suppress it. We shove it down. We shut our eyes to it. We ignore it. We don't want to see it. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. The truth about God is not hidden. God has not scattered small clues and hints through the world that the smartest people might pick up on. No, Paul says, he has made it plain. He has written it in 10-foot letters and stuck it on billboards. He has made it plain. I am here, he has said. I am good, he has said. I am generous. I am glorious. How has he done this? Well, look at verse 20. How has he done it? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, divine, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
the world blazes with God's glory. Every part of it cries out, I am the good creation of a generous God. As the crocuses poke their heads out in the park, we, we know, don't we? we? We know this is beautiful and something in us whispers, I didn't make this, I don't deserve it, it's a gift. I should thank the giver. And yet, Paul says, our response is to bury our heads in the sand, to put our fingers in our ears, to squeeze our eyes tight shut, to refuse to see God's glory, which Paul says is obvious in the world. We have snubbed God by shutting our eyes to his glory. We have snubbed God by shutting our eyes to his glory. The philosopher Bertrand Russell, who was a great hero of mine, um, particularly as a teenager, he, he once said, if I die and it turns out that God is real and I stand before him, I will say to him, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. But this passage says, Professor Russell, you are kidding yourself. You are deceiving yourself. Look at the end of verse 20. When any of us stand before God, if we have not embraced the gospel, end of verse 20, we will be without excuse. Without excuse. We won't be able to defend ourselves. We will be inexcusable. And that's a big problem because what we have done is so serious, Paul says. From verse 21, he begins to explain what we have done. And he says, what we have done is we have insulted God by replacing him with his gifts. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Imagine that a man married a woman, moved into her home, enjoyed her cooking, enjoyed her looking after him, and yet utterly ignored her, pretended she didn't exist, never acknowledged her existence we would say that's toxic. We would say that's abusive. We would say that's utterly, deeply, profoundly wrong. If he was our friend, we would challenge him. And yet, that is how, as humanity, we have treated God. Every breath, every friendship, every sunset, it's a gift from him. And yet, we have ignored him. We haven't thanked God. We haven't glorified God, Paul says. Giving thanks is about responding to his blessings and thanking him. Glorifying is about delighting in, focusing on, being thrilled by his inherent goodness. He is so good in himself, so utterly wonderful that he deserves all of our attention, irrespective of whether he's given us anything at all, but also because he has lavished his gifts upon us. But verse 21, we chose to be stupid. Verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. As we shut our eyes to God's glory, as we harden our hearts 
to take his gifts whilst rejecting him, we lose all wisdom, Paul says. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. God's creations are beautiful. My son's homework this weekend is to draw a picture of lots of different animals, and and they're beautiful. And as humanity, we are glorious. But because we reflect the glory and the beauty and the wisdom of our creator, and these things are designed to point us to him, to drive us, to worship him. But look down to verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. This is the most terrible insult to God, isn't it? Imagine that I drew a picture of myself and gave it to my wife, Liz, and she liked the picture. I'd be complimented because I'm a terrible artist, Um, but imagine that she was pleased with the picture and she kind of started carrying it around, and I was like, yeah, she likes the picture, that's great. But then imagine that I said to her, tomorrow night we've got a babysitter coming, And uh, so they can look after our children and we can go out for dinner. And she looks really disappointed. And she says, oh, I I, kind of had plans. I was going to go out for dinner with the picture. I was hoping that you'd look after the children. And I'd go out for dinner with the picture. Would would that be okay? (laughs) That would be an awkward conversation, wouldn't it? Because that would not be okay. That would not be okay. You know, that would be kind of awkward and kind of rude. And uh, that would be difficult. But that is how we treat the awesome, glorious God all the time. I've got time for the job he gave me. I've got time for the house he's given me. I've got time for the family he gave me. But I don't see how I'm going to fit him into my diary this week. The day is full. So I can't see when I'm going to pray, when I'm going to read his word, when I'm going to turn my heart towards him. And how could I expect my kids to miss that match to come to church? They're too busy enjoying the health that God has given them. And as we say these things are more important than God, we spit in his face. We know he's there. We know he's glorious. We know he's generous. But we're saying that his gifts are better than him. We are in denial. And what is God's reaction to this? Look back up at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. The wrath of God. God is is angry about our behavior. And doesn't he have the right to be? Some people say, no, no, God is love. He will not be angry. And and they are right. God is love. But love is not indifference. God loves those that we hurt by our wickedness. God loves us. And we cheat on him with the things that he has made. The Son and the Spirit love the Father. And yet we treat him as, as the light and cheap and weightless. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and we treat them as less than dirt. God is not angry despite being love. He is angry because he is love. Love does not shrug its shoulders. 
If someone loves their spouse and they find out that they are cheating on them, they're deeply hurt. If someone loves their children and they find out they have been abused, they're deeply angry. Love is not indifference. God is not love despite, God is not angry despite being love. He is angry because he is love. And verse 18 says that the wrath of God is being revealed. It says that if we look around the world, then we will begin to glimpse the reality of God's wrath. Where will we do that? Where can we look to begin to see the reality of God's wrath? Well, verse 24 tells us, we glimpse God's anger as we are enslaved by our desires. Look at verse 24. Therefore, because we valued him as less than his creation, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. God gave them over. It's a very strong phrase, isn't it? As we reject God and harden our hearts against him, he he no longer holds us back, but lets us do what we want to do and experience the horrid tyranny of our own evil desires. I don't know whether you've experienced this in your own life, but I feel like I have at times. There are times when I've been tempted to sin, but something has held me back. Maybe circumstances or a Bible verse or a comment from a friend, and by the mercy of God, I am restrained. But then sometimes I've strained against that restraint. And it's like leaning on a door that suddenly pops open and I find myself tumbling into a pattern of sin that causes me pain and people around me pain. And it's like God is saying, well, if you're determined, I'll let you taste what it's like to rebel against me. Imagine a kid at your local primary school who resolutely every morning fights his mum about putting on his about putting on his school uniform. He wants to stay in his pajamas. And then one day, his mum just drops him at school in his pajamas. And he has, he has, it sounds like someone might have done this. Um, and, and he has, a, he has a, a, a not a great day at primary school, but the next day, he gets dressed. And God sometimes has, lets us as adults experience what it is like to rebel against him. He says the most terrifying words that he can say to us, your will be done. Your will be done. And so the prodigal son goes off to the far country carrying his share of the inheritance and ends up envying pigs, which eventually sobers him up. And he comes back to the father. He returns in repentance And Paul says that looking around the world today should sober us up, should make us realize that as humanity, we are that son who has gone off to the far country, doing what we want to do, following our hearts and wrecking our lives. Our media says that we are liberated because we've thrown off God's rules about sex. But Paul says, no, our attitude to sex is actually one of the strongest demonstrations of our slavery. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, we would all love to see an end to global hunger, wouldn't we? I think everyone in the world is horrified when they say images of children starving. 
The, the World Bank reckons that um, the majority of global hunger could be eliminated for $7 billion a year. $7 billion a year. They, they say that would save 6 million children per year from starvation and save millions more from stunting. And yet last year, consumers in the US spent $20 billion on pornography. $20 billion. And that's just the US. We don't have stats for the UK. But are we really thinking rationally as humanity when it comes to our sexual choices? I've seen friends who have worked so hard to provide a home for the families that they love suddenly make sexual choices that separate them from their family, that force them to sell the family home. And is their cheating rational? Is their adultery rational? No, it's not. Is it liberating? No, it's not. It's slavery. They're tearing down everything they've worked so hard to build. And Paul now zooms in, in verse 25, on, on one set of sexual desires. And it's very hard for us to hear this at our moment in history. It's the opposite of what all our media, politicians, and even our education system says. I was seven when I had my first lesson on why these verses were wrong from my teacher 32 years ago. But this is what Paul says. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. It's clear what Paul's talking about, isn't it? Men being filled with sexual desire for other men, women engaging in sexual activity with other women. It's an example, Paul says, of our slavery to our wicked hearts. If that raises questions for you, then I'd be very happy to talk with you about that because of my friendship circle, because of my age and educational background with growing up at a time when it was very much being promoted, uh, because of my work, primarily with 20s and 30s. This is something I've had to think about a lot, but the text is very clear. I'd be very happy to talk about any questions you have about it. But Paul carries on, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they do what ought not to be done. It's not just in the area of sex that we're messed up as humanity, Paul says. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. It's a horrid picture. But is it really unfair? They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. That's the 10 o'clock news, isn't it? They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. That's the stuff that sells magazines, isn't it? They invent ways of doing evil. Every film has to push the envelope a little bit more to get a reaction. They disobey their parents. That's the plot of every kid's film, apart from The Lion King. Follow your heart, disobey your parents, save the world. And verse 31, they have no understanding... No fidelity, no love, no mercy. It's a horrid picture, isn't it? But the TV shows that we are wrecking the world by our behavior. And honest self-examination shows us that too, doesn't it? My biggest problem is myself. It's the biggest problem I face in life. It's me. 
I don't do all of these things, but all of us do some of these things. And we know it's irrational. We know it's self-destructive. Why do we act like this? Why could this possibly be a happy thing? Paul says it's inexcusable. Verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Buried deep down, we know that these things are awful, deserving of the ultimate penalty. But that doesn't stop us doing them. It doesn't stop us celebrating others who are doing them. And the celebration of these things helps us get into a a state of collective denial, where together we pretend that everything is fine. But Paul tells us we should be in no doubt. We glimpse God's anger as we are enslaved by our desires. We have treated God disgracefully, and we are beginning to taste the fruits of that. But wonderfully, Paul tells us, when we turn to him, we are given his righteousness. Hopefully we can now feel the glory of verses 16 to 17. I'm sorry, it is bleak what we've seen in verses 18 to 32. But against that backdrop, suddenly verses 16 to 17 shine with the brightness of a lightning flash on a dark night. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. We have snubbed God by shutting our eyes to his light. We have insulted God by replacing him with his gifts. We are glimpsing God's anger as we are enslaved by our desires. But God has something that brings salvation, that brings rescue, that offers us the power of the eternal creator God to do what we need. It doesn't matter what our background is. It doesn't matter what sins we struggle with. This is the power of God for salvation for everyone. For everyone. How can it be Well, verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The righteousness of God could be revealed by him crushing us. That would be revealing his justice. But that is not how God has chosen to reveal his righteousness. His righteousness is revealed by the gospel, by Jesus, the holy and righteous God, being crushed instead of us to give us what we don't deserve, his own righteousness. How do we receive this? Well, the verses are very clear. It's not by our perfection. The gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. The righteous will live by faith. We receive this righteousness by faith, by coming to him with empty hands, by saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Clothe me in the righteousness of your son. Lord, I turn away from all of these things. I turn to you, for you 
are worth it all. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge our rebellion. We deserve nothing from you. We have been in denial, shutting our eyes to your glory, hiding from the light. We have insulted you, grabbing your gifts, but ignoring you. We have become enslaved by our own desires. We have applauded those who do things worthy of death. We have cared deeply about what people think of us and disregarded what you think of us. All we deserve from you is hell. We come before you with empty hands and nothing to say in our defense. But loving Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have promised that you won't drive away anyone who comes to you. And so we come to you. Clothe us in the righteousness of your Son. Thank you that as we come to you, you say, you are my children with whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Father. We turn away from the things that we have put in your place. You are the pearl of great price. Whatever it costs us, we must have you. We give up everything else because to get you is worth losing everything. You are our God and our King. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Strengthen us to follow you, whatever it costs, to never be ashamed of you or your words. Give us urgency to take this message to the lost and keep us faithful to you until either you return or call us home to be with you. We ask all this in the name of our Son and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.